really perfect. He had the loving just before tonight. Because this afternoon, I would talk about tonight, and then at the end of the yoga class, uh, when Dana read her poem that end, that had the line, May no false gods hide me from the shower of God's love. And the line, may I fall awake. I thought in that very moment of um, a line a friend of mine taught me as a prayer that I've held close to my heart for many years. The line is, may I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. And I had such a strong sense that what I wanted to talk about was how what we are doing all the time here is praying for peace. Do you remember there was a bumper sticker for a while that um, said, pray for peace? So you're driving along the highway, see a bumper sticker that says, pray for peace right now. But I thought to myself, that's what we're doing here all the time. This is with or without words. This is one long intention for the discovery of the heart of peace that's the birthright of all of us. And reconnecting and reconnecting again and again with that possibility. So this morning, um, I wasn't here this morning because on Wednesday mornings, uh, there's a class down in the meadow in the, in the community hall. And uh, we sat, as we always do before we had the period of teaching. So we sat, and it's uh, often my habit in the last 10 or 15 minutes of that class, when we're sitting for the last 10 15 minutes of that sitting, to say, uh, if you have anyone particularly on your mind that you'd like to mention uh, that you're holding in your heart that you would like for us to know about, so we could hold that person in our heart as well, why don't you just mention it right now? And so from all over the room, people will say, mentioning by name, I'm thinking about my neighbor so-and-so who is starting her third round of chemotherapy for <clears throat> uterine cancer today. And someone else from another part of the room will say, I'm thinking about so-and-so, so-and-so, who is challenged with this difficulty today. And um, it starts often slowly. People reflect for a little while, and then one person's voice, and another person's voice, and another person's voice. And then it picks up and it goes on and on for quite a long time. And I often feel as it is that it would be fine if we just did that the whole time and we didn't ring a bell or have a talk or a teaching. It would be wonderful if we just mentioned everyone who's in our hearts with a particular difficulty. And it's our habit and our custom there not just to say the name of the person I'm thinking about, so-and-so, so-and-so, but I'm thinking about so-and-so, so-and-so with a particular difficulty that that person, with the particular difficulty that that person is facing. And so as, you, as we sit, it often happens for me, as it did today, that I'm so struck by the just the vast panorama of pain and challenge that human beings are challenged with all the time. And often when people say, I'm thinking about so-and-so, so-and-so with this particular challenge, I don't know that person, but I know someone else who has that particular challenge. So the challenges are universal challenges. I know someone else with uterine cancer, and I know someone else whose uh, child's marriage has just fallen apart. And I know someone else with that particular worry or that particular concern. So it's a, really we talked about it afterwards because we're often, as a group, 
quite stunned by that experience. It goes on and on. We sit quietly. And then we acknowledge that we're thinking about all those people. And I ring the bell. Today, before I rang the bell, I said, um, you know, it's our habit just to sit <clears throat> here quietly and know that we're holding these people in our hearts with uh, thoughts of loving kindness. I said, but how about if we each of us whispered our prayers? I read to you earlier this week from that book of whispered prayers of people in really challenged circumstances and the urge to enunciate what's on our heart. I said, let's just whisper it so only you can hear it, just be yourself. But why don't you make up your own liturgy of whispered prayer for all of the people that we've mentioned? And we just whispered a little bit. Everybody whispered together. I said, I'll ring the bell once, and you can start whispering. And then I'll wait for about a minute and a half. Then I'll ring the bell again. And then stop whispering. And we'll have just a room full of whispered prayers. And afterwards, we talked about the first noble truth, that, that um, teaching that really life is really painful, suffering just built in to the fabric of being alive in a body and a life. It's not a mistake. Illness isn't a mistake. Old age, dying isn't a mistake. That's part of what it is to be a human being. Loss is what we are always challenged with. And how to stay awake and alert to the truth of that so that the response to that, which is always compassion, can manifest, is really the edge of everyone's practice. How to be able to see the truth of suffering and really hold it. Not to become so overwhelmed by it that we can't look at life. I remember once um, um, in a period of very intense practice, um, I was so overwhelmed with how everything was fading in the very moment of its arising, how everything disappeared, nothing lasted, nothing could be counted on, everything was constant loss. And I went in a quite distressed um, state to uh, see uh, Joseph Goldstein, who was my teacher at that time, for that practice period. And uh, I told him about, I, I, I described to him my view of suffering in the world, in myself, and what I saw. And he agreed with me as I, I said, and this, and yes, and this, and yes, and this, and yes. And when I got all finished, I was about to go out of the door of his room. He said, um, be very careful, Sylvia, not, not to let this awareness of suffering condition an aversion to life experience. And because I'm actually, uh, I suppose at least at that time, very polite student, I said, thank you very much. And I went out and I closed the door. And as soon as I closed the door, I thought to myself, how? How should I do that? What did he mean, be careful? In what way? What was going to help that vision? Today, one of the things that I discovered is uh, two things help the vision a lot. It's always uh, not sad, but a serious sense that we feel in that room when we really acknowledge together, this is very hard. What we had today as uh, our topic, and people had done homework about, was we were on the fourth in the traditional list of 10 paramitas, 10 refined qualities of heart that the Buddha is said to have developed in all his lifetimes prior to his full awakening as the Buddha. 
and uh, it's the uh, the quality of wisdom. And uh, I had said last week as a homework that uh, I hope people would think about how do you practice wisdom? All of the other um, qualities you could imagine practicing. You could practice generosity. You could practice morality. You could practice renunciation. The thought could come up, should I give this, should I not give it? And you could give it. The thought could come up, should I do this or not? Maybe it's... And you could decide, could make a decision. Could, you could practice renunciation. You could practice patience. You could practice being truth, truthful. How do you practice being wise? You could have the intention, but as a practice, how was it? And some people um, shared in small groups and then as a big group today how they, when in their lives, they had been wise. It was actually quite uplifting because one after another people told each other in small groups and then in the big group there was some sharing. And each of the shares had something to do with this was the challenge that uh, brought unclarity to my mind and some amount of confusion. And then there would be a list of a number of the other qualities of heart, a number of other paramitas. And then I waited. I practiced patience. I told myself the truth. I waited until I was clear about the truth. I brought all my resolve to seeing it through until I knew I was telling the truth. I realized from the sense of ethics, what would be skillful and not skillful. And then I acted, and my action was wise. And we all felt so uplifted by each other, because here we are, all regular folks with regular challenges, talking about the possibility of acting wisely in our life. It's not at some time in the remote future when we might accidentally become wise. Now. We are wise, and it's wonderful to tell each other, not just that wisdom is spontaneously arising, but that we have the wherewithal and the tools and the intention to act out of that place. And so we can wait, pay attention. We actually decided after a while that we could really phrase what we were saying in terms of this was the confusion that happened, and then I paid attention, da, 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 with truthfulness, patience, as many of them as we could mention. And then when I was clear, because clarity is really the, the uh, context or the, uh, the characteristic of uh, the mind in which wisdom arises. So you can practice waiting for clarity. I had an experience uh, last summer where I was uh, going to be a speaker at a conference somewhere with someone else that I didn't know at all. I knew something about, but is not a colleague of mine, and actually teachers in another spiritual tradition, one that uh, is uh, not a contemplative one, more an uh, uh, one geared to study uh, as a mode of practice, uh, more bhakti, um, in at least in outer appearance practice, than this particular practice, which is a practice of uh, really awakening intuitive wisdom. But since we had two different uh, practice traditions and lineages, we uh, decided, with the help of the conference organizer, that we would talk to each other and get to know each other. Nowadays, people do that by email more than anything else, before we met so that we would have a sense of each other. And so we were invited to open our discussion with each other uh, and by describing our practice. So it was really quite lovely because we took that to heart, both did our homework, and our emails crossed in cyberspace. So uh, it was sort of not knowing what the other person had said before you said it.
And I did not, nor did he, describe any mechanical thing that we did. We didn't say the techniques that we used. I said, my practice is paying attention as much as I can and trying to notice when I am distracted and confused and when I am doing what I can to become undistracted and unconfused. His email said, I am trying to keep my heart open all the time and noticing when it isn't. I thought to myself, that's really, those are interchangeable descriptions. I could have said that about my own practice as well. He could have said what I wrote as well. I think the essence of every great spiritual tradition is the awareness that if we wake up, if we pay attention, we can wake up, we can fall awake. And the manifestation of that will be that we'll manifest ourselves in love. We'll just love. May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. What happened this morning when I walked out of that class and came up the road from down in the meadow up to here is that I noticed yet another bush that I hadn't noticed that isn't in flower yet, but the buds of which are just getting ready to burst. And I met James on the walkway. I said, look at that. Look over there. This is what we need to be able to see. We need to have, I think, a kind of um, binocular vision. My husband needed to have cataract operation on both eyes uh, while he was still in his 50s, quite young. And uh, he sees wonderfully well now because they put in a whole new lens. And uh, he had been before that all of his life very, very myopic. So he could only see without his glasses very close and um, somewhat astigmatic. So there was a kind of a blurring. And then on top of that, as one gets older, many of you have probably noticed, begin to be farsighted so that uh, I've needed to start wearing glasses as I've gotten older in order to be able to read. And it's really wonderful because the lenses that they put in for him, one sees far and one sees near. So he doesn't need glasses altogether. He gets to see at all the levels, up close and far away. And I think to myself so frequently that what we are trying to do in this practice is see up close, really, what's happening inside of us, which is really up close. Up close, what's happening in the world how much pain there is just attendant on being alive and alive and how much pain how much extra pain we add by not being aware of those forces of greed and hatred and delusion that cause us to behave in ways that cause extra pain how much we need to be able to have the heart to look clearly at that suffering in order to be able to address it, the suffering in ourselves and the suffering in the world, and how much we need to be able to see at the same time with that really wide-range vision, how extraordinary it is to be in a life. It is difficult and challenging and extraordinary that it's happening, that those trees know what to do every year at the right time. I, I uh, was walking behind the dining room to go around to the yurt at lunchtime today, and I noticed there's a particular pink bush with, that is out in flower now. And I thought to myself, well, next year in February, when we're all back here again, that tree will probably be doing exactly that same thing at exactly this time. It gave me such a really wonderful feeling of hope and interest to be here next year to see if that pink tree is there doing its thing again next year. Think that somehow it is that sense of awe and wonder that keeps the heart buoyed up so that we can bear to look at the pain, that keeps seducing us back into life with some amount of joy and delight, 
so that we actually have the heart. You know, often people say, I couldn't stomach the pain. I don't know about stomach it, but heart it, you know? That it's so hard to hold. So then I came up from uh, my experience down teaching this morning, and uh, it was about uh, 11 o'clock when I came up, and uh, so I came by some of the interview rooms, and uh, of course you can't hear what people are saying in the interview rooms, but you can look through a couple of the windows, and you, so you see out of the corner of your eye that somebody, you don't look so even carefully, so you don't know who it is, somebody is leaning forward and telling her or his experience so sincerely, and the other person is leaning forward and listening so sincerely, and I got a hit of how sincere we all are in our practice. And then at 11.45, I came in here and sat down with the people who were sitting in here. I looked around and I realized that we're sitting here together either two weeks or for some of you four weeks. And from outward appearances, you look around, it looks so quiet. And somebody just passed by, doesn't look like much is happening. But I, you know, I know, first of all, from my own experience, and second of all, from sharing experience with so many of you, that everything is happening. You know, I had a view years ago. I imagined. Do you know when you uh, uh, see in the comics they have balloons over people's heads, and then it's got a little arrow over to that person, so you know it's this person talking or that person talking. And sometimes they have balloons, and it's not exactly an arrow. It's like bubbles coming down to that person's head. And so you know that what's in that balloon is what's happening in their mind at this point. I remember many years ago looking out and imagining that everybody had a balloon over their head, and that without even knowing who people were, I could imagine that there would be balloons with torrid erotic dramas happening in them. <laughs> because my balloons sometimes do that. You know. Or balloons where wars are happening in the balloons. Or balloons full of smoke and confusion. and Balloons with volcanoes exploding in them. Probably corresponding to my sense, if I sit here on the Zafu, one more moment I'll explode. And balloons with big question marks in it. What am I doing here? What is this about? Who ever thought I would be able to do this? But balloons of doubt. And that if I sat here long enough and could see into the balloons, they would float around and <laughs> bounce off different people's heads. They'd be here for a while and there for a while. And this person's balloon would bounce over to somebody else's place, and that person's balloon. Every once in a while, there'd be a balloon of bliss or an empty balloon. <laughs> Sometimes there'd be balloons with Z's in it. In the... <laughs> the important thing about those balloons, though, is that they don't stay in any one place. They're not solid, those balloons. They pop like balloons do. You've noticed that. You have a whole big balloon of story. And all of a sudden, you walk into tea, and the tea looks good, and the balloon pops, and it's gone. And you can't even remember what was in that balloon. And it had seemed like a lead balloon before you went into the tea, but it's gone. It's actually how you know that everything is really empty of anything permanent. Sometimes you go back and you say, what was that balloon? But it's all gone, and you don't remember. It's one of the things that causes me to connect with that sense of awe. It's amazing. There's nothing in that balloon at all, and the balloons keep ballooning away. Even that there's no one who owns the balloons. They keep happening and hanging up there, or here or there, wherever they hang, and influencing how this mind-body being goes about its life until we begin to see it. And then we're a little bit free of it.
Well, the, the balloons, by the way, carry you around as far as I can tell. But if you know that, go around with you, or you carry the balloons around. The balloons accompany this mind-body being. But they don't push it around so much. They're not really problems. Not so much as they used to be. So I came in and I saw everybody sitting around with their balloons this morning, and I thought to myself, what we are is ardent. I looked at everybody here, and I looked at, thought about those people leaning over and telling their story to somebody who was leaning over and listening. And I thought about all of us down in the community hall this morning, telling about who we cared about, and telling about how we had managed to be wise in this situation or the other situation. And I thought the word that describes us best is ardent. And I remembered how much that word is a word that's in the suttas that the Buddha said ardently the practitioner contemplates the physical sensations and their arising and passing away. Ardently the practitioner contemplates mind and the contents of mind. Ardor is what we bring to this. And more and more ardor as we have more and more continued understanding of really what it is to be in a life the possibility of being held captive and the possibility of freedom and the possibility of sharing that freedom, teaching freedom, being really an instrument of peace, discovering one's own potential for a peaceful heart, and then by one's very being, teaching it. I think what we're doing here all the time is we're praying for peace. Metta or not. Sometimes I say to people, we have a very unusual liturgy. We have a liturgy of silence. But we're praying for peace. In every moment that we sit here, with the intention for clarity in that moment, with the intention for non-distractedness, the intention to tell ourselves the truth and be here for that moment of truth. We are praying for peace. I used to actually say that as a prayer for myself. Um, actually, I like it. Maybe I'll start saying it again. I remember it accompanied my uh, first years of practice. I had great, a lot of struggle in them. I would say to myself, look, you don't need to do more than this moment and anticipate the next. And so my prayer would be, may I be here for this moment in the hopes that I'll be here for the next one, regardless of what it is. May I be up for this moment of experience in the hope that I'll be here for the next. May I not hide. That was a variation of that prayer. May I, I tell that to people sometimes. I say, don't duck. That's the practice instruction. Whatever it is, don't duck. You can be here. Don't hide. Don't duck. Don't be embarrassed. The mind is absolutely, you're, because we're absolutely naked here, and the mind is going to just give you everything that's there. Everything. Every thought, every memory. The whole of your life comes pouring out or up or however it is. Every memory, every vulnerability, everything happens. I remember in my early, uh, one of my very early retreats, I got to understand the instructions for practice, which I hadn't really quite understood. I mean, mechanically, I knew how to sit and how to walk, and I guess I'd heard about attention to the breath, and I was kind of doing it, but without much of a sense of uh, towards what end. I think I was more in those days trying to be a good meditator rather than trying to have a wise or peaceful heart. I was really trying to learn the dynamics of how to meditate. And I was at a, uh, we were having a, a group interview. And uh, one of the people in the group 
asked um, uh, my friend and, and teacher Jack Cornfield uh, this question, she or he, I don't remember, uh, said, uh, I don't get, uh, I'm kind of missing that this isn't a bhakti practice. It's such a dry practice. No bhakti. You know what bhakti means? It's a word from the Hindu tradition. It means devotional. It said, nothing bhakti in this practice. No singing, no dancing, no bowing, no chanting, no, no bhakti. And uh, Jack thought about it a little bit. And then he said, it's really a wonderful practice answer. He said, I think this is the most bhakti practice of all. We all here sit down and each of us says, here I am, God, do whatever you want with me. That's about it, you know. We don't condition our experience at all. We say, here I am, I'm up for it. It's really that surrender and that openness to whatever is. Say, there is nothing in the world that I do not accept, nothing that I will not stay up to, nothing that I will be in contention with. Here I am, I accept. It's the ultimate bow. I actually like the word surrender a lot. For some people, it's a difficult word, but the probably the most important moments in my practice when I've been in some really difficulty in heart and mind and stuck in them have happened when I have said to myself, I give up, I surrender. And then something else happens. So everything in the world comes up. Every memory, every um, hurt that happened to us, every hurt that we did to someone else. I've really been thinking the last couple of years. It's really been um, more uh, true of my practice, I think, in the last several years, that I'm... uh, I'm more taken with the hurts that I've done to other people. I think maybe that's the natural progression of things. Maybe maybe for a while or for some period. Not to say one ends and another begins. But I think for a while, uh, maybe as we calm down and begin to heal, I think what was most prominent for me is the, the pains and the fears that I had had. And uh, just as whatever my life had done with me. And what I really am aware of now is what an enormous uh, opportunity for uh, moral inventory. Not only opportunity, but unavoidable challenge to do moral inventory. This practice is nothing stays hidden. I told a story, which I I guess sometime last fall, so some of you may have heard it, so I will tell the whole story again, but uh, about uh, uh, a very tiny event happening. I was traveling back east in the fall and teaching uh, in a very intense way over some weeks, and teaching just as sitting really brings a tremendous amount of openness to the mind and heart. uh, just as I left the retreat, someone was driving me to where I was going to be next. And it was fall in New England and very beautiful. And my really, my heart felt wide open. And all of a sudden, we came into the view of the Hudson River. And she said, that's the Hudson River. And I suddenly had a memory of an unkindness that I had done 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, 45 years ago, Uh, an unkindness, an unthoughtfulness. I'd left a date that had taken me on a picnic on the Hudson River and spent my day with some other more interesting people. (laughs) I told the story. I feel chagrined every time I tell it. What was really important to me is someone said later, 
know, it's a really small fry stuff, Sylvia. You know, you you were you know fifteen years old. Give yourself a break. You know, you young and you know teenagers do that sort of stuff. They do. So it's not that I haven't forgiven that fifteen-year-old with foolish, momentary, captivated attention. That's not a problem of that. It's how much it struck me about how long every single thing that causes pain stays written in our hearts, and every tiny thing. Somebody else said to me after I'd heard that story, I told that story, someone else said to me, um, and sometime after that, I told that story, they said, uh, uh, was that the most terrible thing you ever did in your whole life? <laughs> So I said, you know, I'm sorry to say, no, you know, I wish. Uh, but, um, but actually that's what really so um, captivated me, the fact that the, the egregious things I've done, I can call to mind quite easily. The, uh, and I think to whatever degree I can't, could, I've made reparations for everything that I knew I needed to repair in my life. Those are the big things. But I think that every time we hurt someone's feelings and knew about it, it got written in there somewhere. And it's 45 years later and the statute of limitations is over and I don't know where to find this person and apologize and they've probably forgotten it and I would just be bringing it up. And there's nothing to do with it except that rededicate my own resolve to not hurt feelings now. That's the only thing I can possibly do to heal that piece of unfinished uh, business in my heart. So I'm happy that the unfinished business comes up because then you get a chance to make some repair, if not with that person, in terms of your resolve. And I'm happy that this practice does it. And it's a relentless practice. It doesn't let up, ever. That's the wonderful thing about it as well. I mean, what really do we have to do for the whole rest of our lives but repair our hearts and do that heart housekeeping? Hope that we're cleaning house faster than we're messing it up. And So if I'm doing that, then I can manage to look at my life really clearly without wincing. I once, uh, many years ago, studied a form of uh, a form of um, self-awareness called uh, intensive journal keeping. My teacher was Ira Progop. I did it quite seriously for a number of years. I even taught it for a number of years. It was kind of a written mindfulness practice. And I remember Ira saying, um, you ought to be able to tell the story of your life to yourself, all of it, easily. It doesn't mean that it would all be stuff that you would be pleased to have done, but that somehow you would have come to terms with it so that it runs easily through your mind his, um, his um, image for it was it should run easily through your mind like uh, sand in a sandbox. He said, you know, if you have children have a sandbox outside, and you go and you play in the sand and it, the grains of sand run through your hand, he said, maybe the story of your life could run through your mind with that amount of ease. It's all different, but run easily. He said, sometimes, you know, when it rains, uh, the sand in the sandbox all gets lumpy and hard. He says, you have to break it up a little bit. And he said, it's been raining in our minds and our lives for a long time, so this business of paying attention is a way of just breaking apart the clumps of our life and allowing it to run through our fingers, making the repairs that need to be repaired not letting it run through with dispassion, letting it run through with passion, and the passion to make repairs, and the passion to rededicate ourselves to 
living our lives out of that clarity of intention to express itself in love. I was thinking about um, uh, Ira Progop today with affection. He's dead now. It's been a long time since I've seen him. And I was thinking about that image where he said, uh, all of your life ought to be able to be acceptable to you. That really involved, and I didn't understand it as well then as I do now, acceptable to us in the same way as my friends say to me when I tell them the story about the 15-year-old unkindness that I did. They say, Sylvia, you were just 15. And if I understand that, you didn't know better. We never knew better. At whatever age that we were, we never do better knew better. We were always doing the best we could. When I am most clear, I really know that I couldn't have done anything different than how I did it, when I did it, whatever it was. And the really significantly worse blunders that I've done, I also did, because I couldn't see clearly enough to do otherwise. When my mind is clear enough, I have enough balance in it, really an understanding of karma. You really know there are causes and effects. Things arise because of conditions. Whatever I did arose because the conditions caused it to arise. I can make a determination to make the conditions different by dedicating myself to clarity. While I was thinking today of how much I wanted to talk about this practice as a prayer for peace, I was thinking about, and I'm thinking about Iris saying, your whole life ought to be acceptable to you. Thinking about the prayer line that says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. I think that's enough. We could just end it. Just be acceptable. Not to you, to, to what. Just may they be acceptable. First of all, may they be acceptable to me in my most clearly dedicated mind. For which I have to uh, stay awake. It's hard to stay awake because we get lulled into complacency a lot of the time. I uh, was... Uh, flying on an airplane, coming back from the East Coast, and uh, uh, often I talk to people on airplanes, and I like to do that. This particular trip, I flew all the way from, I don't remember whether it was New York or Boston, there was a woman sitting next to me, and I hadn't said anything to her on the entire trip. I read, she read, we ate, whatever, just didn't do anything with her. And we were coming across Colorado. And suddenly, uh, there's a tremendous patch of bump. Uh, it's the sort of thing, sometimes the, the, the captain comes on and says, you know, there's going to be turbulence up ahead. You put on your seatbelt, you kind of brace yourself. Sometimes it happens, it's probably happened to you, that all of a sudden there's like a patch of ex- like corrugated air. You kind of like bump, 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 bump. <laughs> and uh, it's the kind of patch that after it's all finished, the pilot comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, um, that was a mountain wave. I'm very sorry that we can't see them in advance because there's no way we can pick them up on the radar. But while it's happening for 30 seconds or a minute, you notice that everybody has noticed. They put down their spoons, (laughs) forks, they put down their reading material, they look around, see if everybody else noticed. And I uh, looked over at the woman next to me, with whom I had not exchanged a word since we'd gotten on the plane. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I put out my hand, and we held hands. And bump, 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 <laughs> until the end of the bump, and it smoothed out, and we smiled at each other. And, <laughs> and I realized that that's really the paradigm for the whole life, you know, that it's, it's, we can't see when the bumps are going to happen. Everybody's in the same boat as we. 
really. Sooner or later, we're all going to bump. The best we can do is remember that everybody here is going to help us out and hold us up. And we'll hold them up. They'll hold us up. Sometimes we'll hold each other up together. We do it better in connection than not in connection. And there's no way that there aren't going to be bumps and that we don't need each other to remind ourselves that we can live our lives aware of them, responding to them. So I'll end by telling you a story of... uh, I was coming home from a conference in Southern California, and uh, I I had to leave this conference center quite early in the morning. It was uh, somewhere outside of Santa Barbara, and I had a plane out of LAX. And, you know, one of those um, uh, airport vans came and picked up a lot of, you know, a bunch of people, eight or nine people, and uh, we all got in the van. And it was quite early pre-dawn hours and it was very misty on the highway. It was a kind of a misty morning and I like to sit always in front in the the van. I like that seat and sometimes I like to talk to the driver. And uh, actually it turned out to be the very driver that I had uh, come to Santa Barbara with several days before. So I'd already had quite a lot of conversation with him on the way down. (laughs) I already knew that his name was Mohammed and that he had come from Bombay and that he was living in Los Angeles and that his family was back in India and he was hopeful to bring them here and that he had two brothers and a sister and that he had opened a restaurant business in LA but the restaurant had failed because of the neighborhood and so he had gotten, because he could, he had a chauffeur's license, he was now driving a van. So I had already been through all of that demo. <laughs> demographics with him on the way down to Santa Barbara. And uh, actually it was kind of, I was sleepy myself, everybody in the back kind of dozing off, and I was a little bit sleepy and it's misty, and the road is pretty boring, and we're riding along and I'm kind of dozing. And uh, he leaned over to me at one point, and he said, uh, listen, uh, I'm a little sleepy. Uh, do you suppose that anybody here would mind if I pulled off the highway and got myself a cup of coffee? So I said, no, I'm sure nobody would mind <laughs> at all. And uh, I, But at that point, there was no, there was no uh, restaurant. It was a completely deserted patch of highway. So I said, uh, you want me to drive until we get to a place? <laughs> And he said, no, no, I could make it. We'll get to the place pretty soon. So now I'm up, you know, so I figured I'm going to talk to him now while he's driving. So, but I had run out of the demographics because I knew all his stuff already. So I said, uh, Mohammed, you're a Muslim, right? And he said, uh, yeah. And uh, I said, uh, uh, do you pray? He said, yes, I do. I said, uh, five times a day? He said, uh, yes, I do. I said, do you have to face in any particular direction when you pray? Now, of course, I know all the answers to these questions, but I'm just trying to get a conversation going with him about this to be sure he's up. So he said, yeah, you have to stand in a certain direction. And I said, what do you say when you pray? So he said, he said, he said but it's, in, it's, it's not in English. I said, that doesn't matter in English. Now, tell me how you say it, whatever it is that you say. Uh, so he said what he said, and then I said, listen, Mohammed, when you pray, how long does it take you to pray? He said, well, some people pray long and some people pray short. <laughs> he said, sometimes you don't have a long time, so you have to pray short. And then he thought about it for a minute, and he said, um, but he said, you know, it doesn't matter how long you pray. He said, what matters? He said, some people, they stand and they pray all day, but it doesn't count because their prayer is not connected to their heart. So I said, okay. I said, how do you connect your prayer to the heart? So he said, well, 
he thought for a minute, and he said, well, he said, you just have to look around. See, you just have to look around and see how it is with people. You have to see that it's so hard to be a person and to have a life and to figure it out. He said, and we're all in the same situation. He said, it's exactly the same as if we all fell out of the sky and we fell into the middle of the ocean and nobody knows how to swim. He said, that's what connects your prayer to the heart. So then I said, Mohammed, there's a Wendy's over there. You <laughs> said what? You want to drive off the highway and get some coffee? And he said, no, I'm awake. <laughs> so... May we all fall awake in this practice. Waking up is a possibility. It's not only a possibility, it's our birthright. It's not that hard. Really, it starts and ends with intention. All of you are here ardent in your practice. All of you will continue to be ardent, whether you stay here or you go home. This is it. It's a lifelong practice. I often think to myself when I meet somebody back again on retreat, or I am back again on retreat, that we just do this life, and from time to time we go home and do the laundry. That's it. And then we come back again, and here we are again. Whether or not we even come back, it's just a life of waking up and doing the laundry and waking up and doing the laundry. That's all. So I thought that we might sit for a minute, as we often do. But I thought that you might think about what prayer you would say for yourself and your waking up if you were writing your own liturgy. Don't even think. We'll just do it. Remember when I said earlier that this morning I said, I'm going to ring a bell and for 90 seconds whisper so you can hear it, your prayer for yourself, for your kin, for your community, for each other, for the world. Any prayer you want, your own words for 90 seconds. What we'll hear is our own prayer, and what we'll be aware of is everybody else praying with us. I'll ring the bell, and 90 seconds later, I'll ring it again.